So after a few weeks break from First uh, Peter going through the holidays, Randy jumped us back in last week. We all got squared away on the whole husband-wife thing and, and how that fits into the larger pattern of behaviors that Peter lays out in this letter. Uh, and, and they are patterns of behavior that point to our pursuit of holiness. Peter had already addressed how we are to be subject to governments and authorities, how Christian slaves are to be subject to their masters, even the bad masters, uh, and then how wives are to be subject to their husbands, and how husbands are to understand and honor their wives. Of course, part of the challenge for us in these passages is, although it's pretty straightforward, it's pretty, pretty clear, um, the language that is used it, it, it seems that deceitful people can and have twisted it around to make it say things it doesn't say. Uh, or to, to emphasize sections that weren't intended to be emphasized. Or, more likely, we attribute uh, emotional weight to the words now that were not emotional then. Words like subject to or weaker vessel I mean, those words get us all Twitter-pated now. You know, we, we start to react emotionally rather than according to what was intended. When, when the husband and wife instructions are seen in connection with or related to the rest of the book, it paints a clearer picture. There's a, there's a grander theme at work, uh, which flows from how this whole section began. Well, let's go back and look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's addressing here the, the believers who are now living as physical and, and really spiritual exiles, and he's encouraging them to orthopraxy. You've heard this word a lot, right? Orthopraxy is right behavior. Conduct yourselves in the right way. Conduct yourselves honorably. And his ultimate goal, our ultimate goal, should be to glorify God. That's what he's getting at here, to see God glorified. And one of the paths, it turns out, one of the, the methods to glorification involves us. As, as long as followers of Christ are stuck here on planet Earth, we are sojourners and exiles, and we're called to live lives that reflect our faith. We are to live honorably. We are to do good deeds so that God is glorified. And in general terms, as Peter lays out, it means we do things like we're subject to every human institution. Okay, that one's easy. We can do that one, all right. Or we are to honor everyone. Mm. It's harder. We're to love the brotherhood, the extended family of God. We're, we're to fear God and honor the emperor. Those are big, bold categories of faith and faithful living. But then he got more specific, more precise. He got into the, the nitty-gritty of everyday life, much to our chagrin, perhaps. And he describes how servants are to honor their masters, no matter how well or how poorly they're treated. In fact, he says, do good, especially when you're mistreated. I mean, after all, Christ suffered for you. So by enduring and doing good in your own suffering, you are reflecting the example of Christ. You're, you're showing the love of Christ to those who oppress you. And somehow in that, God is glorified. Well, we read through that and we think, well, 
All right, we're okay with that. That's all well and good for servants. We understand the big concepts here. We're not even really bothered by this teaching because, well, that doesn't really apply to us for the most part. But then Peter went on to say, Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing them the honor they deserve as co-heirs. And now we start to feel maybe the little hairs on the back of our neck stand up a little bit. Based on our emotional understanding of the language. But Randy did a good job last week of putting all this in the proper context for us. It turns out the teaching around this is still to glorify God. It matter how husbands and wives interact. That's still the big idea. So how we conduct ourselves in the marriage relationship matters. Even though Peter's emphasis here is on those who are unequally yoked, wives with unbelieving husbands and vice versa, the teaching applies to husbands and wives in general. We still seek to glorify God in our relational orthopraxy, how we conduct ourselves. That's been this recurring theme. Then we get to today's text, 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter's gone from this kind of general advice, fear God, honor the emperor, etc., etc., to more specific advice, servants and masters, husbands and wives. And now we're back to kind of general again. To all of you, and this is to all of those who are trying to glorify God, the, the exiles and the sojourners. He says, here's a list of worthwhile goals. Here's some things for you to focus on. Have unity of mind. This is sometimes uh, translated as like-mindedness. Some translations might say unity of spirit, which speaks to not just agreeing on issues of theology or doctrine, but we're united in attitude and purpose as well. And remember, this chapter, uh, this book, he starts off by telling us to be, to, to prepare our minds. Part of this preparation means that we're united in our beliefs and our vision, our purpose. Now, the caveat here is don't waver on truth. Just because someone says they're a Christian and they deny parts of the Christian faith, we're not to be so unified with those people. Right? There's, there's, a, there's a common set of beliefs that we are all in agreement with, but don't get hung up on the minor issues. We can still have unity of mind. We're called to have sympathy, and, and here it involves the idea that as the body of Christ, we are always ready to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. This is kind of a counterbalance to the unity of mind idea. That was more logical. Sympathy is more emotional. We're called to have brotherly love. So we see the continuance here of the, the idea of family, the church as family. Just like a real family, we don't have to agree with everything everyone says all of the time. And we won't. But we're called to love them anyway. Keeping Christ as our role model. We're called to have a tender heart, to be compassionate. It's interesting, the, the root word here is, really refers to the inner organs Throughout the Bible, the use of inner organs are connected to things like mercy. You remember some of the Old Testament phrases like the bowels of mercy? So the focus here is still kind of on our, on our feelings. 
It's more feeling-based in, in how we are to be compassionate towards others. And finally, Peter reminds us that we are to have and to share in humility of mind. Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. This is a hard one. Because we're all pretty special. Now, some might call this low-mindedness. Sometimes it's, it's translated low-minded. Um, which is interesting because he starts off this list with calling us to be like-minded. And now he calls us all to be low-minded. It's just making sure that we are not the lone focus of our activities and efforts. We have to move our vision out to other people. We're part of a, part of a body, and we should act accordingly. So if you look at all these things, these are all, these are all designed to, uh, they combine to help establish guardrails on our lifestyles. If we're mindful of these traits, they help drive our behaviors. They help direct our do-goodery in an appropriate direction. And that direction is to glorify God. And then Peter adds a negative command, really two commands. Do not repay evil for evil. That speaks to our actions. And don't revile if you've been reviled. And revile typically refers to abusive or scornful language. So when people lash out at you, happens a lot these days Peter says don't respond in kind don't respond to bad behaviors with more bad behaviors and don't respond to bad speech or attitude with more bad speech or attitude because those are not God glorifying so honestly the list of do's that we went through first those can be challenging enough but trying to be mindful and consistent in the don'ts is a whole other level of challenge. People are frustrating. People can be infuriating. I can't tell you the number of times I've had to count to 10 before responding to somebody or the number of times I've had to count to 45 before I hit post on the Facebook button. Or I've had Lene read it and she said, yeah, don't do that. <clears throat> don't post that. Now, Peter's writing to a church that is currently facing or has faced or is likely to face real persecution. Not just name-calling on Facebook. So if they can do this, if they're called to do this, if they can live up to these standards facing real persecution, then surely it could be easier for us to do it. But what I really like and dislike in this section is that Peter says, he doesn't say rather that we can't respond at all to negative situation. He tells us to respond. But rather than repaying evil for evil, rather than reviling for reviling, he, he calls us to bless them. This is so counterintuitive it almost hurts. Which I think is the point. You know, now, the way my mind works is I read some awful thing somebody posts on Facebook, and so my reaction is, all right, I can follow scripture here if I just post, well, bless your little heart. <laughs> not the same thing. It's not the same thing. 
Peter, Peter says, if we bless those who hate us, then we will be blessed. If we bless those who do evil against us, if we bless those who are vile against us, we will be blessed. And he goes on to quote here, he draws from what is Psalm 34, really. He says, for, then you see the quotes, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So as followers of Christ, if, if, if we want to follow Peter's instruction, then we don't repay evil for evil, and we don't revile those who revile us. Then we will be included in the righteous group here. The Lord sees us. The Lord hears our prayers. He's open to our prayers. And that's a blessing, that the Lord hears our prayers. Remember the last section, the warning for husbands who didn't treat their wives well? Their prayers would be hindered. Most assuredly, not a blessing. So having our prayers heard by the Lord is a blessing. It's a reward. If we obey this text, not only are we behaving in a Christ-like manner, glorifying God, but we're rewarded for it. We're, we're, we'll be blessed as a result. But Peter's not yet finished with his persuasive argument. He goes on in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness, respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Again, let's put this in the, the context. Peter's writing to believers who have either willingly relocated or been forcibly relocated to strange lands. Now, the reasons for this relocation may well have involved persecution of some kind, actual physical persecution. So this suffering for righteousness' sake has, has personal and intense meaning for many of these early readers. As opposed to maybe, I think, less direct, less intense meaning for us. Most of us have not suffered that kind of persecution. But the application still holds. When he says, who is there to harm us if we're zealous for good? Well, it's certainly not those who force people to move, the governments. But this is a big, broad, over overarching statement. Who is there to harm us? if we're zealous for good. And as we go through this, you'll see that Peter is not saying, well, I'll tell you, I got the answer. If you just believe in Jesus, obey Jesus, uh, life is rosy. Everybody's going to love you. Nobody's ever going to harm you in any meaningful way. In fact, you're going to live in this kind of protective Holy Spirit bubble all your days. You can live your best life now. Obviously not what he's saying, because what he says is, even if you suffer. He's not saying you're not going to suffer. He's saying even if you do. 
even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake. So he's not eliminating the possibility of suffering. He's not promising a stress-free existence. But I think there, there's an important distinction for us to make here between suffering for righteousness' sake and the trials and the testing that we all face routinely. It may feel like suffering to us. And this distinction became a little more clear for me over the last week or two. So I'm going to draw on some personal experience here for just a minute. Uh, And I have this degenerative disc in my neck that started about a year ago. And it flared up again in a pretty serious way on January 1st. Which was a great start to a new year. So it's been causing pretty constant pain in my neck and shoulder and arm. So you can't sleep much. I can't do much physically before... I just have to sit down, kind of cock my head at a weird angle and elevate my arms so the pressure is off that nerve just a little bit. So I look like kind of a zombie if I move around like that out in public. Uh, This last week, Monday, I got some nerve blockers, which are helping a little bit, but not nearly as much as I'd like. Um, Which, by the way, they're supposed to make me a little um, uh, tired, uh, maybe a little fuzzy thinking. So keep that in mind as you're rating the sermon this morning Um, now for me this has been two weeks of suffering sleeping three hours a night probably grumpy don't know I know but it's not suffering for righteousness sake I mean it might be I don't don't have any way of knowing but I know for sure that from a biblical, biblical perspective this really is a trial it's something to be endured It has tested my faith at 2 a.m. in the morning when I'm close to tears and praying for relief. But it really is a a trial for this particular exile on planet Earth, and and it's a function of living in a fallen world. It's the result of sin entering the world and making us less than perfect. And we all have our issues. And we just have to deal with the consequences of gravity and aging and dying and and a trial is different from what peter refers to here as suffering for the cause of christ now i don't know that i have a really good example of that but a number of years ago i was working in the produce industry and an issue came up within the company um, related to sexual harassment so i called on the owners uh, to address the situation i was fairly persistent in my demands. Uh, The female employees were all watching. They were expecting action to be taken. The male employees, for the most part, were just watching, waiting. And after a prolonged period of inaction, uh, I decided that I could no longer represent the company. I was the sales manager. I was the one out making making calls. It was my face associated. And I I could no longer represent the company as sales manager. About the same time, they decided they didn't want me continuing to stir things up. And so we came to an understanding. And I left. Now at the time, it felt a little bit like persecution. It felt like we were having to prepare for suffering for the cause of righteousness. I mean, it meant the loss of all of our income. Lene was at home with the kids, homeschooling. We we had fairly recently moved into a new town. We had a pretty small population. I didn't have a lot of local business contacts at that point. 
So this seemed risky, and some actually suggested it was boneheaded. But we felt like it was important to stand for the cause of righteousness. Well, I began to receive other offers for, for employment, but those would all involve relocating again. And we, we just, uh, regardless of all that was happening, we were pretty sure that the Lord brought us to Washington State for a reason. And we stayed. Prepared to suffer, at least financially, for that decision. But during that time, it caused us to reevaluate re our lifestyle. It caused us to rethink our financial decisions. And, and surprisingly, even though I acted for what I felt like was a righteous cause, looking back, we can say that the Lord intervened at any number of steps along the way, and we never really suffered in the way that Peter means here. We didn't miss any meals. We didn't lose our house. In fact, the result was a fairly interesting and weird career change for me. And so we didn't really suffer, but we were prepared to. We understood what it meant to take a stand for righteousness, and we experienced, I think, what Peter says, that if we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we will be blessed. Now, it goes without saying that the Lord generally blesses us in ways that we don't expect. We may not even recognize it as a blessing at that point. Maybe he blesses us in a way that we don't even want like becoming an associate pastor of a church in a small town. But it turns out his way is always right. Believe it or not, this fall is going to be 20 years. Isn't that crazy? So when Peter says, even if you suffer, you will be blessed, he's not making it up. And he's making, I, I think, what is a logical inference here. The inference is that no matter how much suffering we may experience, and again, this is specific to suffering for the sake of righteousness, not suffering because we put all of our money in crypto, oh no, what are we going to do? No matter how much suffering we experience for the sake of righteousness, the blessing from the Lord is always bigger and better and worth it. The reward for suffering outweighs the pain or the inconvenience of suffering no matter how extreme. It may not feel that way right now. The blessing may not be immediate. Even knowing all of this doesn't lessen the pain of suffering, but it allows us, it empowers us to endure it, to persevere through it, because we're moving towards the blessing, and that's going to be greater than anything that came before it. So it makes sense then when Peter goes on to say, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Easy to say, less easy to live through. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Whatever they do to contribute to our suffering, the Lord is bigger. His blessing is bigger. And who are the them that he refers to here? Well, it's those who slander us. It's those who revile us, those who talk smack about us for being Christians, for living differently. It doesn't really matter who the them is. The neighbor who mocks you for going to church on Sundays or making fun of your kids for being Christians. Your co-workers who laugh at you for not padding your time clock or, you know, stealing staples or whatever. It could be the government who tries to coerce you into doing things against Scripture and against your own conscience. 
But the identity of them is less important than the knowledge that's being shared here. You need not fear them. Your blessing will be greater. Because the Lord is bigger than all of the thems combined. Instead of fearing them, Peter says, honor Christ in your hearts as holy. Make him first. Double down on your Christian behaviors. Don't shrink back. Lean into the Lord. Base your decisions and responses on the example of Jesus. And in so doing, you can and should be prepared to make a defense of your actions and your behaviors. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? You can give a reason when people ask, because they'll notice. Your life's a little bit different. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? You can give a reason for the hope that's in you. You can share about your blessings. And going through this again, I kind of felt like this is a reference back to what Peter wrote at the start of the letter. In the beginning, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the biggest blessing of all. Our hope and our reward is eternal life. Salvation offered through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what we're called to share. That's what we're prepared to defend. So when verse 17 says, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that's God's will for you, than for doing evil, there is kind of a sense of, of foreboding there. We may suffer in this life doing the will of God even if that involves suffering for our faith, but we will receive an eternal reward because God is bigger. This is already done. That's the hope we cling to. That's the certainty that we count on. Conversely, it says, those who do not follow the will of God, those who perpetrate evil against us, they may well prosper in this life, which drives us all crazy. They may prosper in this life, but they will be put to shame. And in fact, they'll suffer for eternity. Now, while we understand all this, I think, from a, you know, from a spiritual perspective, we understand what Peter's saying and how this is going. In the cold light of day, it's harder to accept. I don't think there's any of us that wakes up thinking, okay, Lord, how can I suffer for you today? Point me towards the suffering. I'm your guy. I am fired up and ready to suffer. This is not a natural response for any normal, sane person. So Peter continues with a line of argumentation here to better help us come to terms with the concept. Kind of. He says, <clears throat> For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So this starts off pretty simple, I think, and then it gets a little less clear, muddy, no pun intended. So Peter first makes the point that as followers of Christ, we're called to be Christ-like. 
we, we suffer to the, to the extent that we suffer for the cause of righteousness. It's not unlike the suffering of Christ on our behalf. We're following in his footsteps. We're called to take up the cross for Christ just as Christ carried his cross for us. He was righteous, but he willingly died for the unrighteous. So he did suffer for the sake of righteousness so that he could bring us to God. So the first hearers would have understood this completely. We pretty much understand what Peter's saying here. Jesus died for our sins. By his stripes we're healed. Jesus became the bridge between God and man. He gave us a path back to God. We're okay here. He was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive in the spirit, as we will be also. Okay, we're, we're still pretty clear here. And then the text takes a bit of a turn. It says, He was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited, or some say ended, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. What? How does that fit in? How does that apply? I mean, we went from Christ dying to Noah's ark and spirits in prison? What does that mean? It turns out this is a much debated section. It has raised a lot of questions over the years. Questions like, who are these spirits in prison? Are they unbelievers who've died? Are they Old Testament believers who've died? Are they fallen angels? And what exactly did Christ preach? Did he preach a second chance for repentance? Completion of his redemptive work? Did he preach final condemnation? And when did he preach? Was this done in the days of Noah? Was it somewhere between his death and resurrection? Or was it after his resurrection? Part of the confusion here comes from the use of the Greek word pneuma, which means spirit. And it can mean, has been used to mean, to refer to both human spirits or angels. So, are we talking about Christ preaching to human spirits or to angels? Well, it depends on the context. Our understanding of the text depends on whether we see this as referring to human spirits or to angels. And over the years, because of some of the questions around this, there are five main ways of understanding this text that have developed. We're not going to get too far into the weeds here, but I think a quick review of this will help us land on how we understand this text. Maybe you can even decide on what you think is the most biblically consistent view. But quickly, here they are. The first interpretation is that Christ, through Noah, the spirit of Christ through Noah, preached to the unbelievers on the earth at the time, but because of their disobedience, they died without believing, now their spirit's in hell. After Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, offering salvation. That's an interesting one. That's the second chance idea that has come up. The third is, after Christ died, he preached to people in hell proclaiming victory and confirming their condemnation. That seems a little petty. Ha ha, I'm right, you're wrong. After Christ died, he proclaimed release to people who repented just before dying in the flood. All right. After Christ died, he proclaimed victory over fallen angels. Again, seems a little petty. Now, this, he went and preached to people in hell offering salvation. Purgatory kind of stems from, from texts like this. They, there's the second chance uh, of offering salvation. It's a wide variety of ideas and opinions. But I think when we look at the context um, that comes before and after this verse, in our, I was going to say in our view, really it's my view because I haven't discussed this with the other elders, but in my view, the interpretation the first interpretation is probably the most biblically consistent. It lines up best with Scripture. 
The first interpretation understands pneuma as spirits, and it refers to human spirits, specifically to the unsaved or unbelieving humans in the time of Noah. They're now dead. They're spirits. So Noah was not just a, a boat builder, but he was preaching God's word through the spirit that was informing his thoughts and his actions. The previous verse here talks about Christ being dead in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which, so this is Christ in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed. So Christ in the spirit is the actor here. He's the mover, and he's moving on. He's moving in and through Noah to preach repentance. But the people did not obey. We'll see again in Second Peter that, that he refers to Noah as a herald of righteousness, which fits well with this understanding. It supports this view. So Noah is sawing with one hand and preaching with the other as he was led by the Spirit. Noah was persecuted for his righteousness at the time. I just don't think we can even imagine how much heckling and mocking he probably received. There were clearly no CCNRs in those days. That ark would have put the whole neighborhood under a big shadow. It wasn't just a little boat. It was a big boat. But Noah was obedient to the Spirit. He endured suffering and persecution, and he and his family alone, because everybody else rejected the message, Noah and his family alone were brought safely through the water while the unbelievers perished. Now I think this interpretation best squares with the Old Testament account as well. I just wanted you to see that there are other views here. Um, you can begin to see how some of the other doctrines of purgatory for one um, can come out of other interpretations. So we need to be careful on some of these things. They end up with ideas that aren't really supported anywhere in Scripture. The main point here is that we should expect to suffer for righteousness as we follow in the footsteps of Christ, who also suffered for righteousness. And what struck me is we're really more like Noah in more ways than we might think. In Noah's day, he was a minority in his community. He was surrounded by hostiles. As Christians... That describes us sometimes. He was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. He witnessed to the world around him. He preached coming judgment. Those are all things that we should be doing. The Spirit worked through Noah. The same is true for us. During the time of Noah, God patiently waited for repentance. We know that Jesus hasn't come back now because God is patiently waiting till the time is right, till the time is full. And the righteous will be saved from judgment. So Peter's use of Noah as an example here is not quite as random as it might first appear. Peter then goes on to use the global flood survived by Noah and his family to transition into comments on baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this has also caused some confusion over the years. It's important that we keep this in context. If we read this as baptism, let me find my place here. There we go. If we read this as baptism now saves you, period, it would be easy to believe that baptism is a vehicle or the vehicle for salvation. So it's baptism that results in salvation. You're not saved until you're baptized. But in context, I don't think that's what Peter is saying. 
He says baptism corresponds to this. The this is the flood. Noah was saved from the waters of the flood because the flood was judgment against the unrighteous. So Noah's obedience in building an ark, according to the will of God, that's what saved Noah. It saved him from the waters of judgment. Peter goes on to say that baptism does not function as a removal of dirt from the body. That's not its purpose. But rather, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So Peter sees baptism more as a spiritual act more than a physical act. It's not meant to wash us up physically. That's what baths are for. And it's not meant to wash us clean spiritually. That's what the blood of Christ does. Baptism, then, is a physical act that denotes or commemorates a spiritual desire. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Baptism says we now surrender to the will of God. We accept forgiveness. We, we want to stand in a right relationship with Christ for the rest of our life. Which symbolically means we're dying to self. We go under the baptism waters of judgment where we die to our old self and we are raised again to a new life. A life centered around, committed to, following Jesus as Lord. So this symbolic death reminds us that Christ died for us, was buried and rose again on the third day to secure our victory over sin and death. We symbolically share in that death and resurrection. We emerge from the water of judgment with a good conscience, committed to a life of do-goodery. So rightly understood, I think, in context, baptism is a powerful symbol of devotion to Christ. It's a symbol of our future life committed to following him. And it's made even more powerful because of who Jesus is. Peter says, Christ has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God, meaning he's on the throne. He's in charge with angels and authorities and the powers all being subjected to him. So it seems to me in this argument, Peter's really making an an almost circular argument here. Going back all the way to 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's the driving idea here. That's the big idea. Our goal as believers is to live lives that glorify God. So the rest of this section starts to look like this. If our goal is to glorify God, that starts with us having the right beliefs. Understanding who Jesus is, accepting him as our Lord and Savior. Right beliefs lead to right behaviors. Now we're worried about our conduct with the world. What is our place in the world? How are we interacting with the people around us? What do they see in us if we call ourselves Christians? Then he gets into right conduct with the church. Unity of mind, compassion, all of those things we started with. As we're doing all of those things, those all serve to glorify God. And the more we glorify God, the more we see the blessing that comes with that, the more we desire to have right beliefs and right conduct. And it just gets us on the circle that leads us to holiness. If we want to glorify God, which really should be the aim of all humans, Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and love him forever. Of course, that's not our present reality. Not all humans have that desire in mind. But the first step for us is having right beliefs. 
then the knowledge of Christ and the power of the Spirit enables us to change our thoughts and desires to seek God first, to follow Christ towards holiness, to live with right conduct. And Peter's given us all these examples of what that looks like. Those aren't all the things we're called to do, but that's a good overview of the kinds of things we're supposed to do. How we interact with unbelievers and, and governments. How we're to act together with each other. So our lives and lifestyles will be marked by unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. If we live according to these things, we'll likely face some suffering from the hostile, unbelieving world. We're going to face tests and trials just because we're human living in this world. But we might actually suffer for righteousness' sake as well. Which reminds us that Christ suffered for our sins. As followers of Christ, our suffering means we are also following Christ, like Noah did. If we're, we're obediently following the will of God, we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we're baptized, we receive a good conscience, all of which serves to glorify God through our good works, good lifestyles, good relationships. And we get on this circle, we, we get on this loop, hopefully we get stuck in this loop and we just keep moving. Peter's going to continue on this theme as we move forward next week. But here's the challenge, I think, for us all this week. We can be on this wheel. We can be all this on this loop. But along the way, we can get stuck. It may be in right beliefs. We start questioning some things, or we have, we have questions that we're not getting answers to. Or it might be in the conduct with the world. Maybe we're not at, conducting ourselves in the way we ought to. We're kind of stuck there. Maybe it's in how we interact with the church. But that's kind of our natural tendency is to get stuck somewhere along the way. So the challenge this week is to, to try to identify which area poses the biggest challenge for you. Where, where do you have the biggest hiccup? And what can you do to get unstuck? I mean, praying certainly is a great start. But maybe talking to somebody else about it. We all have issues on, on, on some of these areas. Maybe talking about to somebody else will help. Set up some accountability partners maybe. Or, I don't know. But spend this week trying to examine where you are on this wheel in the light of where you want to be. Where we're called to be. The goal for us all as faithful followers of Christ should be to glorify God in all areas of our life. If we're falling short, it's okay. We all do. How do we fix it? So that we don't stay there. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for what is mostly this clear teaching of Scripture. There are areas that are a little more challenging and can raise some questions, but Lord, I pray if we look at this as a uh, united text, um, there are s signals on how we should interpret certain things and remain consistent with Scripture. So I thank you that those are there, uh, and I pray that we have a uh, renewed sense of how this, this cycle works, um, that throughout this week we, see, we can identify areas where, where we might struggle a little bit. Um, it may be different for all of us, but we all have issues. We all have struggles. Um, tests and trials can sometimes knock us off the path here. Uh, Lord, I pray that we have endurance and perseverance to make through those tests and trials. And for the larger issues, well, it seems to me larger, the idea of suffering for righteousness' sake, um, those can be big and ugly and scary. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is suffering for righteousness' sake, 
Lord, that they, that they not just pray and, and seek your guidance and your will, but bring other believers alongside so they have prayer support and they have people to talk to to encourage and support them. They can be big, life-changing decisions. Uh, and so we just pray for your will to, to help us see clearly what those are and how they may come up in our life. We know we have people in this congregation who are suffering on a pretty grand scale um, dealing with serious illness. Lord, those are, those are tests and trials, and those might be suffering for righteousness' sake. We just don't know what your will is um, for their illness other than we know you have called them to proclaim the love of God, and we know that they have done that. Lord, we, we pray specifically for Kim and Jim um, through their medical processes. Uh, Lord, that they continue to feel your presence, that they share your, your love, the love of Christ with those around them. Uh, I think they have been consistent in doing that. We are grateful for that. Lord, that's a lesson for us all to learn from as we deal with probably lesser issues in our daily life. So I thank you that we're seeing that lived out in our body. Uh, I pray that that emboldens and, and, and encourages us uh, in our daily life with people who are around us, that we are quick to share the love of Christ, that we are quick to share the gospel. Um, even as we're dealing with our own tests and trials, we know that people are watching. Give us courage and wisdom. We thank you for this example that you've set for us. In Jesus' name, amen.